the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We are going to talk about scarcity thinking today on the podcast. Uh, one of the things that I think we really have to overcome, I've run into it in leadership. I don't know whether you have. Stay tuned. Today's episode is brought to you by On The Rise. It's my newsletter that goes out every Friday to almost 90,000 leaders around the world. And uh, you can get to it at ontherisenewsletter.com. You can subscribe today. And by compassion, when people experience God in ways that's outside of their usual rhythms and routines, lives change. That's why you can bring the compassion experience to your church. Go to compassion.com slash carry to learn more. Well, today I've got Peter Greer and Chris Horst on the podcast, and we talk about the bad math of scarcity thinking, envy, and unhealthy competition. This happens so often in ministry and leadership, so we just thought, well, let's put a spotlight on it, and overcoming mission drift so that you can learn how to play, as Simon Sinek says, an infinite game. Peter Greer is the president and CEO of Hope International, a global Christ-centered economic development organization that serves around the world. He received an MPP in political and economic development from Harvard's Kennedy School. Peter has co-authored 15 books, including Mission Drift, which is an award winner. And then Chris is the senior advancement ambassador at Hope International, where he employs his passion for advancing the initiatives at the intersection of faith and work. Chris serves on the board of Mile High Workshop. He loves to write, having been published in the Denver Post and Christianity Today. He's also co-authored numerous books, including the one that we kind of talk about a little bit today, Rooting for Rivals with Peter Greer. So if you're like me, you're always looking for ways to get an edge as a leader. And that's why I started my newsletter earlier this year. It's called On the Rise. And I bring you a curious mix of all kinds of articles. So for example, we might talk about the long-term trajectory of giving or church membership, or myths about baby busters and boomers, the real story behind Oppenheimer, uh, how to tie your shoes correctly, believe it or not, that's a thing. And then, you know, it's whatever catches my attention, like how to make meetings shorter for real, or uh, the best bike routes across America, or podcasts I'm listening to, or videos I find really fascinating. So if your interest is tweaked by that, think of it as your online reader. It's the best content I can give. Uh, people seem to love it. It's my most opened email of the week, and you could subscribe for free at ontherisenewsletter.com. That's ontherisenewsletter.com. Well, often you think about the power of a great sermon, but you might underestimate the power of great experiences. That's why I'd encourage you to think about bringing a compassion experience to your church. It's an interactive way to witness the realities of life for children in poverty and the church's incredible response. So I've had the privilege, like some of you had, of going to Guatemala, Nicaragua, or Africa. Uh, I've been to Central America, not so much Africa. But you know what? For the average person, they haven't been there. They haven't seen it. They haven't been in the villages. Well, what if you could bring an immersive experience to your church? Compassion is currently working with the local church to release over 2.2 million children from poverty in Jesus' name. And I've personally been a supporter of them for years. My wife and I sponsor several children. To learn more about Compassion, visit Compassion.com slash carry. That's Compassion.com. C-A-R-E-Y. And now let's dive into today's episode. Here is my conversation with Peter Greer and Chris Horst. Well, Peter and Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. 
Yeah, yeah. So Rooting for Rivals, uh, I saw the book. One of you sent me a card and a note in the book. Isn't that right? Was that you, Peter? That was me. Yep. I've Thank been you so a much for that. I've been a long time listener of the podcast, and you made some comments that related to some of the themes. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for reading it. It means so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a needed, uh, talked about subject. And the book came out a few years ago, but I think it's only gotten worse um, maybe over the last few years. Rivalry has become more intense, less cooperation, more competition. Uh, so you diagnose, I want to start here, you diagnose a rival as a peer, appearing, so a peer, P-E-E-R, appearing to compete for staff funding or recognition. So you guys have been involved in a non-for-profit, non, non-profit for years. So it could be, you know, our competition is other non-profits. Businesses see other businesses as competitors. Believe it or not, if you're in the church, you know this, no surprise. Churches see churches across town as competitors, right? That's what you're talking about. How does that set us up for natural competition, Like when you think about it, why do so many of us go there saying, I'm competing with the growing church down the road, or I'm competing with this church that's stealing our people? Why do you think that seems to happen in almost every industry and field? I think this topic of rivalry is nothing new. I do appreciate you say that it's, you know, maybe it feels more acute right now, but even in the opening pages of scripture, we see Cain and Abel, sibling rivalry. It starts a long time ago and it continues Hmm. today. This idea that there is not enough to go around. And so we see the other, especially those that are closest to us as a threat. And you're exactly right. It oftentimes we don't compare ourselves with individuals or organizations that are so far removed or in a different sector. Oftentimes it's organizations that are closest. And I believe at its root, it really is this worldview of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. There's not enough funding. There's not enough staff. There's not enough resources. And so we identify other organizations as the competition. Here is our team. That is their team. And that is who we are competing against. And we believe that is a common but fundamentally flawed way of viewing uh, other organizations. Chris, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it is as old as time. I mean, it's evident, as Peter said, with Cain and Abel. You look at Jesus' disciples. You look at the early church. You look at the history of our tradition, the Protestant tradition, you know, protest is in our name. So there is this dynamic of we we see challenges and issues within our institutions and we blow them up and we build new ones and we split and we divide. And we're not arguing in the book that every rival or every, you know, pure organization should merge into one. Uh, what we are arguing is that we could do a lot better of working together and recognizing the respective gifts and strengths of organizations that we don't work within or the churches that we don't attend. And in doing so, I believe we can create a better witness uh, for for the, the gospel in, in culture at large. I'd love you to share, because you tell some stories in the book, uh, about uh, rivalries and competitive tactics that you've actually seen in ministry. So feel free to pull from the horror show uh, files if you want. But like, it, it does get pretty bad at times. Well, I think, you know, oftentimes when you uh, look at others, uh, it is perhaps easier to see ways that they have had a an unhealthy view of competition. But really, as we explored this, I mean, these were issues that we were feeling. And Carrie, I went so far as to have a, a little graph on, on my wall right here next to me. And it was a graph of the growth rates of Hope International. And who did I compare myself against? 
it was other nonprofits in the space, and I would <laughs> measure how well we are doing based on the relative growth uh, towards others. And that just does crazy things. Um, it does crazy things when we identify these other peer organizations as our competition. It either leads to an inflated sense of pride. Look at us. We're growing really fast right now compared to the others. Or what, what are we doing wrong? As opposed to a different question, how are we doing with the resources and opportunities that God has given us right now in this moment? Um, so yeah, I, I guess maybe the first horror show is when we looked in the mirror and saw that we had some unhealthy things in our own life, in our own leadership. But then perhaps the most acute uh, example that I did see uh, was when uh, we released a devotional that was built around a question that God asked Moses of what's in your hands. And it was really a devotional talking about how oftentimes God uses what he's already entrusted to us in doing the miraculous. And as we launched this video, there was another nonprofit that reached out and said, Peter, you got to stop using that video. And the reason was because they said, we have trademarked Exodus 4.2. We, we had trademarked those words. And <laughs> I guess two questions in that, carry One, I didn't even think it was possible uh, that you could have a trademark on a Bible verse. And turns out they had <laughs> filed for it. But the second question is, why would we do that? And I think that when we view other organizations as our competition, we hold on with tight fists to things that really are not even ours to hold on to. But uh, to be fair, a few months later, there was a third organization that used that verse in a similar way. And I remember uh, reaching out to Chris and saying, Chris, they're using our verse on that. <laughs> and I think it was at that moment that Chris uh, helped me see there was a giant log uh, protruding from my eye that I better pay attention to um, on this verse. But how easy it is for all of us to hold on to things, especially when it is rooted in a belief of scarcity how easy it is to hold on to things that really should be held with open hands. Chris, what's your take on that? What are some of the the things that you've seen? Uh, and feel free to share some examples. Yeah, that, that one's pretty extreme. Like actually, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I love that trademark marking uh, a verse from the book of Exodus. It's like, yeah, I don't think you can do that. I'm not sure that's going to stand up in eternity. I mean, the, the, there are the personal examples which we talk about. I mean, ultimately, as leaders and staff members at faith-based nonprofits, we have our own battle, you know, to fight on this front. But then institutionally, I think we also saw some really jarring examples within our own sector in the Christian Relief and Development Organizations, but also within the Bible Translation Movement. One of our uh, friends shared a really striking uh, example from, from his foundation where he shared that three different Bible translation organizations approached him asking for money, and they each were asking for the for funds to fund the translation for the exact same language for the same people group. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was striking to him when he went back to them and said, hey, do you know these other organizations are also working on the same translation? They had no idea. Uh, and again, that wasn't insidious. It wasn't that they were trying to kind of fight against these nonprofits. They're just so focused on their own work and their own project, they're missing the fact that there are other organizations, peers, friends out there, brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing the exact same work at the exact same time, and they were totally unaware of it. Uh, and so that that example, I think, we'll maybe get into more of kind of how that came full circle. Uh, but I think that those those realities are true in every sector in in the work that we're doing right now of of organizations just being so focused on building their own little you know their own little kingdom 
that they missed the, the big K kingdom. Well, I wonder if some of that is a natural evolution of where we've come as a culture. So for example, you know, you go through any um, town or village or city in America or Canada, and you'll see an Anglican church, Presbyterian church, United Church, United Methodist Church, right across the street from each other, very normal. And then sometimes a Baptist church or Pentecostal church, more on the edge of town, etc. And it made a lot of sense because you didn't have connectivity. Like if you're going to go to Presbyterian church, you had to be within walking or soon driving distance. And so it would be natural that you're cooperating with other Presbyterian churches, but like you're the only game in town. You're the only hot dog stand in town. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we have much greater mobility. We've got much greater awareness. Do you think some of that is at play? Think about Bible translation societies. Yeah, 50 years ago, you could potentially, because you just didn't know, have three translators in Haiti working on the same translation and you be unaware of it. Do you think some of that is technology and we just haven't caught up? Or do you think it's more malevolent than that? Yeah, you know, Gary, here in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I live, um, it's really interesting to look at uh, when I moved here. I thought that there was uh, the Amish and uh, anytime you see a horse and buggy, I, I guess I thought that was all part of one, but you can actually trace the history back. And I think there is this history of, you know, it is one organization, uh, one, one group of individuals, and then a difference of opinion and a split happens and another split. And now there are multiple different branches uh, within this broader community. Yeah, say more about that, because those of us who don't know Amish uh, culture as well, I think are shocking. Like that went on for a few pages in the book and just tell some of the distinctions. Like it's crazy. Right. Well, I mean, you actually can tell some of the differences. They have chosen to paint their buggies a different color. So you can actually, if you're looking carefully enough, you can tell even the different type of the uh, Amish or Old Order Mennonite based on the uh, color that they use on their buggy, as if to say, we're not quite like them. There is a difference. And some of the splits have happened over some um, maybe significant theological differences, but some of the splits happened over what I would say are some pretty minor differences about uh, certain aspects of clothing and the use of buttons versus zippers. And um, uh, believe it or not, there have been splits over uh, perhaps less significant issues uh, than that. So I think there's something in us, and, and this is not to point to the Amish or Old Order Mennonite. I think it's actually just to recognize that if we're not careful, we can very easily look at others and need to have some sort of validation by saying, we're different. We're not like them. Um, and that leads to splinter. It leads to uh, factions. And really what we're seeing is, but what if? What if we could rediscover a shared mission that was beyond any organization? What if we could rediscover a bigger and more compelling mission to go after? And instead of focusing on those minor differences, what if we had clarity about what is most important and then uh, had some pretty creative partnership in pursuit of that? So to think beyond our smaller differences and maybe to rediscover uh, what we do have in common. Um, we think that is where the movements are happening in our time, in our day. And that's what we want to be a part of. Uh, we want to be a part of not just building a smaller organization, 
but being part of a mission that would be impossible for any one organization to accomplish on its own. A mission that requires us to have some creative alliances with individuals that are pursuing that goal together. And again, there's so many great examples right now in our time of that type of movement that are happening. So Chris, I want to bounce a theory off of you. This is one I developed a few years ago. So I'm in Canada. We have a tiny splinter of the population that's going to show up in church this weekend, less than 10%. And that's just the way it's been here for a while. My theory is this, and feel free to disagree. You don't have to be polite. When Christians are in the majority in a culture where most people are Christians, we define ourselves by our differences. Mm -hmm. And so we say, this is how we do baptism. That's how you do it. We're buttons, not zippers, right? So it's, it's sort of, I've got to distinguish myself from you, uh, other, because everyone's going to church, I just have to say why we're different. When Christians form a minority in culture, in a place like Canada, in a place like Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and many other places around the world, I think we're united by our commonalities, not our differences. And so I kind of grew up doing ministry going, okay, Jesus, Bible, prayer, you believe in those things? Awesome. We're friends, not rivals. Um, do you think there's a difference between majority and minority culture? Because America is very quickly moving from majority to minority culture, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation. What's your thoughts on that, Chris? I, I agree completely. I mean, I've even seen it uh, where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It is a majority Christian culture. And, and I did feel that there was a really intense perspective on this church versus that church and what they believe and what they believe. Being in Colorado, where it's like the last I saw less than 5% of people go to church on a Sunday morning or are regularly a part of a church, there is, a, I think, a spirit of kind of surprise even when you see someone out at a church uh, or your church mm -hmm. that is a fellow Christian that you know from you know school or something else, and you're like, wow, you go to church. That's amazing. Uh, and you you go to a different church than me. That's, that's great. Uh, it's a very different perspective here than even— where I grew up, which was more like the Bible Belt, I'd argue, than than here. And and so, you know, we we make the same argument in the book that the kind of the cultural wins right now in the United States in particular, uh, I think are creating an opportunity for the American church specifically to learn from the Canadian church, to learn from, you know, churches in places where the church is a minority and begin to work together more effectively and not operate from this kind of 50-year-old viewpoint. And, you know, the Pew Trust is one of the most reputable uh, polling and data companies here in the U.S., and they've been looking at Americans' view of the church over the last five decades and assessing America's level of trust in the church. And when they started doing this study uh, on specifically on the church about 40 years ago, uh, the percentage of Americans who highly distrusted the church and organized religion was at 7%. And today it's over 21%. So it's tripled. So the, the percentage of our neighbors that highly distrust us as, an, as a church has tripled over the last four decades. And the same thing has happened on the flip for those that, that highly trust us. So it went from like 45% down to 20%. So overcut in half our neighbors that are, that are highly trusting of us. So we've got an increasingly suspicious, distrustful um, reality uh, of the church from our neighbors. And this this is certainly in some ways discouraging. We, I think in many ways, brought this on ourselves. Uh, but it also mm -hmm. is an opportunity, as you say. It's an opportunity to say, 
what what are we ultimately about? What are the things, what are our hills to die on? And and then even in that place of difference, and we're not saying uniformity uh, is, is what we're going for, but how can we walk out in unity uh, alongside our brothers and sisters in the faith, even if they believe something differently than us about zippers or differently than us, you know, about baptism? Peter, what's your take? Uh, any thoughts on moving from a majority to a minority culture? So Chris and I work for Hope International. So we work in 23 countries around the world, and uh, we have both experienced what it looks like to show up in minority cultures and contexts. Mm. And uh, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, there were not multiple choices of where to go to church. There was one, um, and similar when we have traveled throughout different countries in Asia, uh, there are not a lot of choices. And there is this element of, it does force you to, to, to come together. And I guess, yeah, as you said, that, that there's, there's an upside on that. There, there's a beauty of that. Um, and I think about John chapter 17, and the last and longest recorded prayer of Jesus was for us. He prays for those who believe in his name. So anyone who is a follower of Jesus, Jesus was praying for us the night before he went to the cross. And and the prayer is specific. And the prayer is that we would be brought to complete unity. And it says, then the world will know that you have sent me. So there's something about our witness to the world that hinges on this issue. So we would argue that this is not just a nice issue like, hey, we can accomplish a little bit more if we figure out how to get over our petty rivalries we would say this is central to our witness to the world. And maybe what Chris just shared about the dats, the data about decreasing trust, maybe there's a connection. When the world sees division all around it, and they look at the church and they see that same level of division, I think they have a good reason to be skeptical of whether or not we actually do have the most important thing in common. And so I guess that's really what animates us of how do we live into that uh, prayer that Jesus had in John chapter 17. How do we figure out how to the most gracious uh, approach to each other and maybe rediscover a spirit not of rivalry, but a spirit of friendship as we pursue uh, bigger and better and bolder goals than we ever could accomplish on our own? I'd love to talk to you about abundance versus scarcity thinking, because you raised it already. I think that's a huge issue. It's a issue in life. Um, talk about abundance versus scarcity. Maybe we'll start with this. Why do so many people, what is the psychology behind scarcity thinking? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's really woven deeply into who we are as humans. Uh, I see it with my four young kids almost every day uh, where, you know, that one marker of the 75 that are in the bin is the marker that's creating, you know, this incredible, like, scene in my home. Uh, and there are 74 other markers. And in fact, that marker is going to be back in that bin in about eight minutes. And, and yet it's like, we just cling to that thing that we just desperately want it. We desperately need it. And I think as leaders, we it's, it's the water that we swim in. And it's so hard to get away from scarcity thinking. I remember being a, a new fundraiser uh, with Hope back in 2010. And so I had this opportunity to go and pitch Hope International to a group of really prominent business people and pastors uh, at one of the largest churches. I think at that time it was the largest church in Colorado. And so this, this felt like this moment for me. Like, I'm, I'm going to get a chance to go 
and tell everyone at this you know breakfast why Hope International is the very best nonprofit that they could give to, the most efficient. And so I had my standard Hope presentation, and then I added this last slide uh, on my PowerPoint deck that compared Hope to like really amazing organizations like International Justice Mission, Compassion International, Healing Waters. These are organizations that are doing incredible work. But I, I looked at how many people you can serve per dollar over the course of a year using really crass data from annual reports. And I charted Hope versus all of these other organizations. And as you might imagine, Hope came out like the bargain winner in that comparison. And so we were like the clear, like if you care about you know efficiency and you want to make sure your dollar goes farthest, you should give to Hope International. So I give the, the pitch. I'm like, hey, listen, these organizations are awesome. You'll spend a lot more to minister to one person in a year than you would if you give to Hope, but you do you. Like, you know, whatever you feel called to is awesome. And then opened it up for Q&A at the end of the presentation. And one of the pastors uh, that was in the audience said, hey, that last slide, it was like, it felt like an apples to, to oranges comparison. I mean, you, you're doing very fundamentally different things. And that just felt kind of strange that you would kind of compare Hope uh, to these other organizations. And it was this really humbling moment of recognizing that, you know, it was like Peter talked about earlier of looking in the mirror and and seeing your own scarcity thinking of like, this was my chance. If I don't put down all of these other organizations that are like, by the way, closing down brothels, changing laws in countries about trafficking, helping children to meet Jesus and like be like in a supportive community of friends. I mean, if I have to put that down, in order to talk about hope, I mean, what an absolute tragedy of a <laughs> sinful heart. And, and so it was, I was so glad that that, that that pastor, and I still know him, Dave, good guy. I'm so glad he had the courage to sort of call me out in front of this group uh, because it was just, it was the, the sort of the, the mirror that I needed to recognize that that's not how I want to go about fundraising for this organization. I can fundraise for hope in a way that elevates the incredible work God's doing through hope and celebrates the incredible ways in which other ministries around us are enabling hope's work to thrive. Like we need to be working alongside them. Uh, we shouldn't be working in, in competition with them. We should be arm in arm with them. Thankfully, we've grown a lot uh, in that, I think in large measure because of recognizing there's just no life in that area of scarcity thinking. There's just no, no life. It makes us feel gross. Peter, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about scarcity thinking. So in the scenario that Chris raised, you have pastors sitting there. And I know, I'm just speaking on behalf of a friend. I'm not saying I've ever had these thoughts when I led a church. But there is this natural, and I love how you're saying it's just natural to think scarcity, that, hey, if I let Hope International into my church, that means less money for me right? So a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders of organizations get very protective of, well, if I'm running a restaurant, but I talk about other restaurants, I'm going to lose business. If I'm running an auto repair store garage, and I talk about another guy who does transmissions better, I'm going to lose business. If I'm a landscaper, I talk about other landscapers, I'm going to lose business. And so there's this scarcity mentality when it comes to, you know, well, your first 10% has to be to our church. And then if you want to give over and above, you can give to other causes like hope or compassion, et cetera. Uh, what are your thoughts about that kind of scarcity mentality? 
Yeah, and I love what Chris said, that uh, there's no joy when we become obsessed with comparison. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain said that. He said, uh, it is the death of joy, um, and yeah. that is true, and that is what we have experienced. And the opposite is actually true as well, that there is a energy, there is a refreshment, there is an excitement when we can think beyond just the bounds of our organization. But I think it fundamentally comes down to bad math, carry. Like, what Mm. do we actually believe? If we've got a community of individuals and we have an individual that leaves our church but goes to the other church and is so animated by that other church that they invite four of their friends, uh, what's our math? Is our math minus one or is it plus four? Mm. And I think too often we just have bad math because we do not think beyond the bounds of our organization. And I think you're totally right. Fundraising is where we feel this most acutely. We think there are limited resources. And I so appreciate, um, Chris was talking about IJM, uh, but uh, Melissa Russell was leading their fundraising team. And I so appreciated her perspective that when the ice bucket challenge was happening, a friend Mm. came to her and said, Melissa, I wish all of this attention was for you and IJM. And in a world of scarcity, that makes sense, right? If people are paying attention to this other cause, that means there's less attention for the good work of IGM. But, but she kind of turned that on its head and said, imagine, imagine if you had a family member that you loved that was dealing with ALS. Imagine how it would feel right now when the world is paying attention. Uh, and that moment does not take away from a broader movement of the ability to get excited Mm. about a broader movement of generosity. And then she said this that I'll never forget. She said, I believe in a God that took five loaves and two fish and fed the multitudes. And my favorite part of that story is that there was a basket full of leftovers for every single one of the disciples as a giant exclamation point of, guess what? Uh, God's got enough. God has absolutely enough. So I think maybe it's a little bit rooted in, yeah, maybe we need to think beyond just a a fixed pie. Maybe we need to uh, think about a God of abundance that can do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And then maybe just one uh, additional thought um, in that is, if we're going to be competitive about anything, let's be competitive with the fact that as a percent of GDP, giving in the United States has been static at around 2% for the last 50 years. There has been no movement in the broader percentage that we give. So what's going to happen if we actually collectively say, let's move the needle on that. Let's move the needle on the broader generosity movement. Let's go from 2% to 4%. And guess what happens? Then there is more than enough for all of us. And I believe that sort of bigger vision is going to attract more individuals to want to be part. And it's going to expand that amount of resources for all of us when we start tearing down each other and start casting bigger visions, broader visions that are yeah, require some creative collaboration. So two things. One, I did the ice bucket challenge. That was almost 10 years ago. And until you mentioned it, I was struggling to remember who on earth was that on behalf of? Like, I, I don't even remember. I just remember the ice bucket challenge. That was one of the first viral things that happened, uh, you know, on social media to raise money for charity. So there's that. And then second, Talk to the leader who says, hey, I need to raise $3 million a year for my organization. If I start profiling you, that's going to cut into what I take. Now, you've got all kinds of examples in your work that show the opposite. But speak directly to that leader and say, think again. Your math is bad. 
Um, scarcity thinking leads to dwindling resources. Abundance thinking leads to expanding resources. Some of the, some of the people are going to need data, so help them help them see it. What would you say to that leader? Well, I'm not sure this data can be applied to to financial giving, but I will say, you know, every Giving Tuesday for probably the last seven or eight years, Hope International has given away our platform, and so we recommend five other organizations that you know, our, our donor base, those that sub- subscribe to hope should give to. And, and so we just started doing that. Like here are organizations that we love. Sometimes it's organizations we're working with. Sometimes they're just organizations that we think are great. And it is our most mm-hmm. opened email, most clicked email, most feedback email that we send out every year, like for the last eight years. So that that's one little wow. data point of how countercultural it is. To, to operate that way as a nonprofit that also needs to raise money and also giving Tuesday is a great day to raise money. And it's such a small thing that we do, but it is so surprising to our community of supporters because it's just not something that many nonprofits do. And so I would, I would suggest that when, when we think about specifically fundraising and that leader that needs to raise $3 million, the first thing I would say, and this is, it sounds so simple, but I think for fundraisers, it's really important that we remember this, that there are no donors that are our donors. Um, there are no donors whose money is our money. And so I think a lot of times we operate in the way we conduct our fundraising, like we have power over another individual and over the way that they give. And in fact, we don't. Uh, we can invite, we can cast the net, we can extend mm-hmm. an invitation, but ultimately we are not the ones that are that are writing the check, that are sending the you know the pledge and making the gift. And when we can believe that, then we make the then we start to ask the question: If it's not our donor and it's not our money, then how, in the midst of that truth, would we want someone to approach us and invite us to get involved in their organization? And I think we've all been a part of organizations that will not relent in their solicitation. They're, they will not relent in the mails, mailers they're sending us, the desperation, the scarcity, the, the ways in which things are, you know, give now or children are going to die, like give now or people are going to starve. Like it just, it's, it, makes, it makes us feel guilty and shameful because we aren't getting involved. And, and we, we can write a go away, like appease my guilt check but we're not going to give in a transformative and generous and excited way to a cause that's raising money like that. Now I'm using an extreme of kind of an abundance and scarcity, like the children will die if you don't give today. But most, I would say most nonprofits still lean toward that, that posture of urgency and that posture of desperation that I would say really runs counter to what Jesus calls us to in thinking about raising money. I mean, the story of the loaves and the fishes, we look at kind of all of scripture, even going back to the Old Testament and the, the offerings, when, when the church was at its best, money wasn't an issue. You know, the, the, the mm-hmm. generosity from God's people came out of that place of trust in God and trust in God that he's going to meet our needs. And that might mean that our budget shrinks some years. I'm not making the case like prosperity gospel, like you start abundance fundraising, then your budget's going to grow every year. It might be that you don't need, like that your budget doesn't need to grow. It might mean that you have to shrink for for a season. 
But operating with, from a place of abundance in God's big K kingdom, I, I would argue, is the obedient thing to do. And so it's not really a matter of like, will it work or won't it work? I, I really think it's a matter of either following God's prescription for how we should raise money or disobeying it. So I want to get Peter's take on what he would say to the person who's just gripped by scarcity thinking. But before we get there, I got to ask the Machiavellian question, which is, so when you send that email on Giving Tuesday, does anybody donate to your cause? What happens? That's a good question. Peter, do you know the data on that? Gary, I thought you were going to ask a different question. Does anyone actually follow up and donate to the other organizations? And that I can answer definitively. Yes. We know lots of times that individuals support these other organizations. So the answer is yes mm -hmm. to that. Do people give dope on that day? I would say probably not. Do mm. people end up giving more over time because they see us as an organization that is not uh, relentlessly pursuing its own good and has a vision that is beyond just what we can do? Absolutely um, on that. So I would say probably lower on that day, but I think longer term, it results in greater level of trust. And uh, unfortunately, it sets us apart. It's an uncommon aspect of hope that we really do try to do everything possible to say, let's, let's regularly, routinely think beyond. And while that's an example of fundraising, I think the same principle applies with our staff prayer times regularly. Are we praying for other organizations that are within our sector, within our space? Regularly, are we being generous with the way that we are open sourcing information that might be helpful to other organizations? Yes. And hmm. what happens in those moments? Relationships deepen with these other organizations. Creative partnerships uh, happen. And I would say there is an acceleration of the good that we're able to do as a result. I appreciate you thought I was going to ask a different question. Uh, I see it as my job to ask the question that, uh, honestly, a lot of people are thinking and no one has the courage to ask in real life. So it's like I get to have a fun conversation and ask the awkward, uh, perhaps sinful question. So yeah, thank you for the answer. And I think you're right. It intuitively, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to give to these guys today. But then you remember hope and perhaps it comes back to you. So again, Peter, talk the scarcity because an abundance mindset is something I want to embrace in my life. And I've been working on it for decades. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm just working on it. Talk to the person who's still stuck in scarcity thinking. How do you talk that leader off of his or her cliff? Yeah, I guess I would maybe be super pragmatic and just say, try it. Try it. <laughs> and see if, as a result, you have more joy. See if you have deeper relationships with others. See if you feel like a little bit of a lightning of the uh, oppressive way. If every conversation has to be somehow bent back to yourself, that's not life. That's not relationship. That, that, that's, that, there's no joy in that. Yeah, I, we, this one line, uh, give yourself the gift of getting over yourself. And maybe that's part of this is just like, have the fun of actually not thinking about every conversation in in what is there for you and and then have this broader piece of saying, and what are the resources that are entrusted to us in this moment of time and how do we maximize the good? Um, and uh, again, our experience, not just with Hope, but with other organizations, 
is absolutely in a line. I love the Proverbs 11.25, but it just says, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And that is absolutely what we've experienced. As we have grown in our generosity to other organizations and having a more charitable mindset uh, to our peers, I would say there is more energy, there is more vision, there are deeper relationships with others. And again, the ultimate uh, outcome is there are more people that are being served through hope in these other organizations. There is more good that is being done around the world. And so we just get excited. So for the person that maybe is having a hard time, I would just say, try it. I think try it. And I think practically as leaders of faith-based nonprofits, one of the things we've observed is that it really, it takes practice and discipline to actually do this. You know, having participated in a lot of sales and fundraising training over the years, whenever someone you're meeting with a donor or potential donor, it almost always happens that early in the conversation, they start making the connection between the work they're hearing about at Hope and they, these other international ministries that their church is involved in or that they've been giving to forever. And so they start sharing about these other causes and they start talking about clean water and how they've been involved with clean water and why it's so important in Congo. And, and, and as a fundraiser, the training is redirect. I hear that you're, I see that you're interested in Congo. Hope International also operates in Congo. And then you segue beautifully, you know, into your pitch. And, and I think that the, the, the opportunity is in that moment is to actually be present and curious with that person and say, like, how did your church get involved in clean water in Congo? Like, and just keep exploring and, and learning more and growing in sort of your own understanding of the issue. And like, why does clean water in Congo, like, why is this specific church involved there? And how did that become an issue? And are there any organizations doing great work there? And what are they? And should we be connecting with them? And should we be telling others about them? And, you know, that, that self-forgetfulness, both for us individually and for organizations, I think ultimately leads to just more joyful conversation. It leads to that individual feeling really heard and known. And, and I think ultimately that that's what we're called to. And, and so I think it's it's kind of getting off our own track and, and just being really present in that moment. And in this, this age that we live in, with the clutter and the busyness and the kind of messages always coming in at us, I think providing the gift of being present to someone and listening to them and truly being curious is, is really a sacred opportunity that we have um, as Christians. So yeah, I, I would argue that it's difficult though, uh, because it runs, it really runs against a lot of how we've been trained and wired in order to, to raise money, in order to represent uh, a cause. Well, and further evidence of that, just reread Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the listener usually wins, mm -hmm. right? If you're interested rather than being interesting, it's amazing what can happen. So I hear what you're saying, but I can also see, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of unpacking objections here because I'm firmly in the abundance camp, but I also understand scarcity mindset. Some people are saying, well, maybe abundance thinking is for people who are affluent, because if you knew how tight it is around here, you knew how hard we fight for every dollar. You knew how close to the line we actually live, uh, that if we lose 10%, we could go under, have to close the doors. So how do you maintain a posture of abundance when really you don't have a lot? Gary, we might be the wrong people to ask that question. Uh, the work that we do brings us in relationship with the global church. 
in places mm. of extreme poverty, the core models that we use, uh, individuals saving together, uh, individuals investing in each other's businesses together. And uh, we have seen community and generosity in places that uh, would take anyone who is having that uh, conversation, uh, maybe have a little bit of a pause uh, to, to say that. So I guess I would push back a little bit on that. And yes, it might mean a change of plans. Yes, it might mean that we need to do things differently. But I just uh, yeah, do not believe that there is not going to be enough. And maybe, maybe there might be some additional creativity that will come. And how many organizations discovered significant changes that happened in the year 2020 when regular operations were disrupted? I can tell you from our vantage point, the answer is a lot. There is new innovation that happened when individuals said, this is a change in circumstance, let's figure it out. And I think in a similar way, instead of just bemoaning the fact that we feel like, oh, we don't have enough, I think to shift that question and say, well, here's what we do have. What's the way of maximizing the good of that? And real quickly, having the forward momentum as opposed to just sitting back in a posture of, oh, there's never enough for us to do. Um, I think there's great innovation um, if we have eyes and vision and creativity to say, this is where we are. Let's make the most of it. And again, we are inspired regularly by the families that we serve around the world that model that generosity uh, in abundance mindset is not tied uh, to the um, real dollars that are involved. Chris, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I remember being in Rwanda and being in a group of individuals that were living on less than $4 a day in a savings group. And there was a woman that was in the community whose husband had just run out on her. And she came to this savings group knowing that the savings group was meeting. And, and she basically said, hey, I, I've got nothing. I need help. And the group members rallied at that, at that meeting, came up with $60 in addition to a bag of beans and rice. And, you know, I was just there as an American sort of observer, uh, donor, supporter, staff member, watching it happen. Uh, I didn't, you know, we weren't asked for money. It was just she came to this community and, and they put together an incredible sum of, of money, you know, which could have been used for their business. It could have been used to feed their children. It could have been used to pay for their school fees, to, to put a better roof on their, their house. You know, kind of, you run through the list of the things that that $60 and that food could have been used for. And again, I don't, I, I'm not in touch with that community today. It's been a long time. What happened? I don't know. But I would argue that's the obedient, faithful witness of the people of God. And that in God's mysterious, beautiful economy, as we operate that way, where we just say, you know, we, we need to respond generously and open-handedly in this moment, uh, God honors that. And, and he provides the daily bread, uh, even in ways that, that don't seem intuitive. I couldn't agree more. Um, I haven't traveled as widely as you have, but I've spent quite a bit of time in Guatemala, some in Nicaragua. And you're in our work there, you're among the poorest of the poor, living on less than a dollar a day. And the hospitality shown by them would embarrass most North Americans. I mean, they have almost nothing, but come into my house, stay if you want, let me prepare a meal. And they break out a feast. And you're thinking, my goodness, this could be two weeks worth of income for you to feed a slightly overweight uh, Canadian. 
Like, what is going on here? And it's really, really humbling. And I, I love the direction you took with that. Second thing, and I think you referenced this in your work, but, you know, Craig Rochelle has, has said a pivot point at Life Church was they were struggling for resources. They didn't have enough margin. And back in 2006, they made a decision to open up Life Church Open and just give everything away. And then they built out Uversion and they have donors funded. So you and I can open up the app. And he said that has blown the lid. Like the very counterintuitive thing, we're going to give everything away, has blown the lid off generosity at Life Church. Are there other examples where you've seen pivots like that with Craig? And feel free to nuance it. You did the research. I just had a conversation. But that's as I remember it from Craig. No, you're exactly right. And uh, we were with Life Church and they uh, gave us a tour and they showed us what they had done. And uh, we came back from that and we said, let's do the same thing. So we created mm-hmm. a part of our website and literally everything that we have is available for free. And there actually were some resources that we had jointly developed with another organization, but raised money to basically compensate the other organizations so that we could make these resources available for free for anyone else that wanted to replicate the similar models. And we've experienced the exact same thing uh, that has opened up the doors to incredible, yeah, just uh, relationships. And then in a similar way, uh, when we have, um, I remember um, early on in the pandemic, when we were trying to figure out how do we get messages to the places that we serve about what it looks like to, to respond well, um, uh, Vision Fund was incredibly open-handed with us saying, these are some of the resources that we've developed. They were flip charts that we were able to very quickly use and get messages that truly were life-saving to the families that we serve around the world. And mm-hmm. And so we have uh, both been a practitioner and a recipient of that sort of a posture of uh, of open handedness. And yeah, the uh, what Life Church has done is is inspiring. And we just think for any nonprofit uh, that does not open source their materials, the question is: Are they operating within their charter to not grow an organization, but mm. to provide a good for the world or for the community? So we um, take a pretty uh, what I hope is not a radical stance of saying, what if we all open sourced everything? What if there were no trademarks? Um, yeah, I think that it would be an accelerant to the good work that's happening around the world. Another big problem that you touch on is envy. Um, can you explain how you see envy surfacing and maybe why that seems to be such a, a persistent factor? Because, you know, there's always someone who speaks better than you. There's always someone who's bigger than you. There's always someone who has more money than you. Envy is a very real thing. Uh, Talk to us about envy. Well, I I remember when I started at Hope. um, So I've been at Hope International for 17 years. And Hmm. when I started at Hope, we were the little guy. Uh, No one knew Hope International. We were, at that point, around a $5 million a year budget. Uh, probably about a thousand donors working in a few countries. And today, you know, we're like looked at by a lot of our peers as like a large organization, $36 million in funds raised, working in 20 plus countries, you know, I think about a thousand employees globally as part of the Hope International Global Network. And so over the course of the last 17 years, I've had this really interesting perspective of going from being a place where everyone else was bigger than Hope, it seemed like. And everyone else had less challenges and paid people more and had better benefits and, you know, go through the list. And now at a point 17 years later where organizations are coming, like visiting Hope, 
uh, to learn about how we grew and, you know, how we operate. And, and it's, it's still surprising me when I meet people and they know Hope International, the real one, because it's kind of a little bit of a bland name. I mean, there are a lot of hopes in the world. And so I'm just so, I, I'm like conditioned that when someone says, oh, I know hope, I'm assuming that they know some other hope. Uh, and, and in fact, a lot of times people actually know this hope, the real hope where we work. Yeah, not the real hope. Sorry, that, that sounds cutting. Um, they, they know the, the <laughs> know hope that's real to me as, as an employee. And, and so I think that the journey of envy for the people of God is one where we first and foremost, have to say, like, we live out of a response to our perfect Savior. So, so we live in, a, in, a, in response to the one who committed no sin. And so our envy should be, like, how do we allow that perfection to permeate us a little bit more individually? And how would we allow the perfect nature of God to permeate our organizations a little bit more. And when we start comparing and, and looking across at that organization that's a little bit bigger, it's grown a little bit faster, or has a little bit more PR, they've, they've gotten more celebrities to endorse them, they've gotten more big churches to come on board, we're, we're really comparing ourselves to the wrong place. And, and our comparison mm. should be in a healthy way to, to look at the glory of God and say, like, how beautiful it is that we serve this this sacrificial, generous, abundance-minded creator, savior. And out of that place, uh, we it's not like, you know, we're not beating ourselves up for that, but we're recognizing that our, our goal is just to try and get out of the way. Uh, our goal isn't to try and replicate these other organizations that are doing great work. It's just trying to like let God's goodness in more than, than we're, than, like our nature is like inhibiting God wanting to kind of break through uh, us as individuals and our organizations. Is this any way related to an earlier book the two of you co-wrote on Mission Drift that uh, can you see any tie-in? Because I can imagine scarcity thinking probably doesn't really have a super tight dialed-in mission with expansive thinking. Um, can you make a connection between the two and explain maybe as well, Peter, what you mean by Mission Drift? Yeah, so... Um yeah, Chris and I, um, along with Anna Haggard, wrote uh, Mission Drift, and really the goal of that was to say, over time, how do we make sure that that we retain our focus on what matters most? Or as Stephen Covey says, uh, how do we keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing? Uh, mm -hmm. How do we make sure we do not drift in our mission? And so we spoke to an incredible group of leaders around the world that have scaled and professionalized their own organizations and retained that that core mission. And so we're trying to understand what is it that they believe and what is it that they do. And I think you're absolutely right to make a connection because in that book, we identify essentially 12 different ways that organizations can practice um, these behaviors we believe lead to uh, a long-term faithful commitment to mission versus the counterfactual compared to organizations that have experienced drift. But I think as we looked at Mission Drift, we recognized that we actually missed out on a really important one. And it was uh, the benefit of this laser-focused on mission. The benefit of having that mission, when you know who you are, when you know what you're about, when you know what your organization is actively pursuing, 
you then start to look at other organizations and say, well, how do we partner together with them so that we can accomplish that mission better? How do we stay in our area of expertise, our area of focus, but then to be radically open-handed when we realize the mission that we are ultimately all about has got to be beyond just the work that we are doing. And I like how Simon Sinek in the uh, Infinite Game, he really talks about the same idea, that when we think about just what's in it for us, that really is finite thinking. Uh, when he thinks about what is best for all of us, that's where movements happen. That's where there is an excitement. That's when there is real significant change that happens within a sector or industry. And so really, Rooting for Rivals is taking how do we stay what, what we discovered in Mission Drift to stay focused on who we are, what we are about, and then to broaden that and say, and how do we pursue that together with other organizations that are also committed to a similar mission? Yeah, so it's been fun, fun to pursue that. Um, and uh, maybe just as a parenthetical comment, I've loved the process of writing. Everything that we've written, Carrie, is not because we have figured it out. We write as enthusiasts, uh, not as expert. We write as people that then use it as an excuse to talk to incredible leaders around the world. And uh, yeah, both Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals, I would say, have expanded our ideas, have deepened our understanding of these concepts. And everything that we're sharing today uh, is really gleaned from the conversations with a remarkable group of global leaders. Well, I think that combination of a laser-sharp mission, we know exactly what we're about, but we're open-handed, is a pretty irresistible. Because it's one thing to have, you know, you're drifting all over the place, you don't even know what you are, and you're open-handed. Well, all right. But, you know, we also know people who are laser-focused and closed-fisted, and that's not great. But I think that's a that's a pretty amazing combo, if you can be crystal clear about who you are, excited about the future, and open-handed and generous to others. That's incredible. Well, I remember, Chris, any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah actually, go ahead. I remember uh, recently listening to a very popular podcast where a um, president of a large uh, university was basically asked, is there any check too big? Um, you know, is there any check that you couldn't put to work within your organization or that you would say no to? Hmm. Like, is there any at any point where you'd be like, we, we aren't the best suited to take the, the money because someone else could do it better. And it was interesting because he said, no, he said, you know, we're the best mm. and it doesn't matter, you know, what area that, you know, the, the passion is of that funder, we can find a way to say yes to the largest check they could write. And I think that's the question for nonprofit leaders to, to really reckon with. And, and like, would you be willing if someone said, we could give you $10 million or we could give you a hundred million, or we could give you a billion dollars. Like, wh what is your mission? And and if you're unable to to clarify, like this is what this is the territory and the terrain that God's called us to, and this is the work that we feel like we are uniquely positioned to address. And if you care about human trafficking or you care about you know children's health and nutrition, here are other organizations that are working on those issues, and give some of that billion dollars to them. Uh, you know, put some of that money to work outside of Hope International. Goodness, like, you know, we want to be organizations that say no to that answer or to that question. Um, I, I think I think that it's really easy to point a finger at someone that's like looking at like legitimately billion dollar uh, checks. Um, but when we look in our own kind of the conversations that we're having every day, 
Um, it's hard. It's hard to say. Uh, yeah, we that's outside of our scope, or they do that better than we do. It's really difficult mm. to even verbalize those words. Mm. Mm. Any concluding thoughts? I love you tying in the infinite game to that too. Game theory is 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 really fascinating. And permission to play again tomorrow. I love that idea. Right. This is this is an unending task, and I think those of us involved in um, causal work, you know, causes that we care about passion work. Um, it's an infinite game. Any final thoughts as we wrap up? Yeah, maybe just, maybe just an invitation, Carrie, which is, uh, oftentimes like it's easy to talk about these, these concepts, right? Abundance mm-hmm. versus scarcity or to talk about is our commitment to the kingdom or is it to our little club? Um, and we just, in our leadership, we want to daily, not just, uh, in a book, but daily say, are we making decisions in light of an abundance mindset and in light of something that is beyond us? And, um, maybe the invitation is to say, take some small steps. Maybe for some individuals, it is going to be Joining in saying, I'm going to spend more time getting to know other leaders of other organizations. If you're a pastor in a community, I'm going to intentionally grow in relationship with other pastors in this community. And I'm going to show up at every single one of those meetings with one agenda item. How can I encourage this person that I'm meeting with? How can I become their biggest fan? Maybe for some, it is actually shifting in our prayer time. How often do we pray for those Mm. other organizations that we feel that twinge of envy that you were just talking about? And maybe for some of us, it's being generous to other peer organizations, knowing that where our money goes, there's a little piece of our heart. And uh, are we generously supporting other organizations that are in our space that are also doing really good work? So I guess maybe the invitation would be, what is the one step uh, to maybe grow towards a more rooting for rivals posture? Because I believe that there really is going to be refreshment and joy that's going to come uh, when we have that posture. And then maybe the the, the second um, comment is, and please be on the lookout for where you see this happening. We didn't have time in this podcast, Gary, to give the specific case studies But even after the book came out, I have been so encouraged by examples of organizations collaborating together and saying, how do we clear the list of kids that are waiting to be in a safe home? How do we fundamentally rethink foster care so that every child has a home? That story that Chris told about Bible translation, they were on track to see the Bible translated into every language on earth by the year 2150. They're now on track to see that done by the year 2033. They've taken 117 years off of the pace of progress, and I could go on and on. So maybe... Maybe there's a little more inspiration that would come. Look for those case studies of where you see individuals practicing the principles of rooting for rivals. And my guess is you are going to see accelerated impact, more joy, and the real movements of our day. Hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, that that whole Bible translation thing, I'm familiar. I've, I've had conversations with some of the people behind that. And to move from competition to uh, cooperation has been transformative. Hmm. And I think, you know, to, to tie a bow on what we said earlier, when you move into a minority culture and the world's looking in, in John 17 prayer, uh, non-Christians don't understand division. They don't understand why you think, I thought you guys were all Christians. Why aren't you? And it doesn't mean we have to completely all become totally one organization, but we need to cooperate. Chris, any final words from you, final thoughts, challenge for leaders? 
Well, I, I've spent some time talking about fundraising and and so I'll just maybe end there with practical steps. I mean, something that I've done historically and and fellow fundraisers I've talked to over the years is that when we host fundraising events or banquets, breakfast gatherings, trips, uh, our tendency is to group all the fundraisers from other organizations together and and sort of um, keep keep a like fence them out from the other donors that are attending our event. And, and I think that there's an invitation for us to really flip our thinking on that and say, how do we instead be about inviting um, donors and fundraisers to sit alongside each other and get to know each other? And if someone comes to a Hope International event and they learn about International Justice Mission or Compassion or any number of great organizations that might be there, like, awesome. That's great news. That's great news for the kingdom. It's great news for the world. And so instead of you know, quarantining them to their own table, um, intersperse those fundraisers, get, get those other organizations in front of everyone that's there, because again, they're not our donors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want, we want people to be exposed to how God's at work and not have a limited view. And I think we'll, we'll stay at that 2% or 2.3%, whatever the number is of, uh, charitable giving. If, if we operate from a place of, um, scarcity. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the book we've mostly been talking about is called Rooting for Rivals. It's widely available everywhere. You also have Mission Drift. And uh, tell me about the other book you wrote together. What's it called? The Gift of Disillusionment. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. (laughs) We'll have to explore that some other time. Uh, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Peter, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Well, I hope that was challenging for you. You know, as a young leader, for me, I often found myself like jealous and competitive. And then God, right around the time I was 40, really wrestled that down. And I'll tell you, it is so much more freeing to get on the other side of jealousy and rivalry and ambition. It's a pretty big kingdom. We all get to play a little role And uh, I really appreciated today's conversation. If you want more, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 592, where you can get the show notes for free. Thanks to our partners. You can also get transcripts. If you want to go down and drill down on something specific that was said, that's available for you. And today's episode is brought to you by On The Rise, my curious newsletter of the best stuff I have found that week. We can drop it in your inbox starting, well, today. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com and subscribe for free. And by Compassion, bring the Compassion experience to your church. Go to compassion.com slash carry to learn more and get started today. Next episode, well, a longtime friend of mine, Brad Lominick. We just go all over the place, kind of off script. It was a lot of fun. We talk about the best career advice, how to get connected with influencers without being a social climber, a big issue, a template on exactly what to say when you meet your hero, and a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt. I do want to start with an honoring of your work. And that could be simply, hey, you know, Carrie, love love the podcast. It's really been helpful for my leadership journey. In fact, um, you know, I'll give you three uh, three episodes or three three conversations for you, that you've had in the last couple of years that really were impactful. You know, your conversation with so and so and so and so and so and so. And here's the things I learned from that. Like that's honoring in person. It's also honoring in an email. Um, so mm-hmm. start there. Start there. Now you don't want to spend the whole time just fanboying though, mm-hmm. because that gets annoying. Um, I think the second part of your connection, if you're meeting somebody new in that situation that you you admire and you look up to, is is hey, can I ask you a couple of questions 
that I've really been wrestling with. And I think, I think you have a lot of expertise on. Also coming up on the podcast, Kevin Kelly, Richard Foster, and Brenda Quinn. John Acuff is back. Miroslav Wolf, Arthur Brooks. So excited for that. We got Dave Ramsey, Mike Todd, John Christ, and Louis Giglio's coming back too, and a whole lot more. So excited for this. And for staying to the end, let me tell you, if you enjoyed this episode, I think you'll enjoy the conversations that the podcasters are having who are part of my podcast network, the Art of Leadership Network. Yeah, you hear that little stinger at the beginning of this show, the Art of Leadership Network. Well, there's a bunch of other shows on that network as well, like the Smart Family Podcast. Adam Weber has got a show. So does Jenny Catron, Christopher Cook, and a whole lot more. And actually, you know what? Brad Lominick is on that network as well. So you can go to the Art of Leadership Network on Insta and you'll always know where to find the leadership conversations you need. So follow, give us a follow, the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram, and we'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Hey, you know I'm in your corner. If this episode has helped you, please leave a rating and review. And I do hope it's helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.